0: Bespoken Media Take a left turn off Edinburgh's Royal Mile and doon a wee Ahead, towers the Black Cliffs of Salisbury Craigs and to your left is a low-slung glass, tile and timber building the Scottish Poetry Library And you come through the front door. Thousands of pamphlets, collections, beautiful poetic works line the walls. And then, through in a wee back room, you find four pals getting together to discuss some poems. On every episode of the Lantern Scottish Poetry Podcast, you'll be joined by me, Ali Heather and Scotland's macker, our national poet, Kathleen Jamie. So we're doing this podcast, episode one, awfully exciting. How come you want to do this?
1: I think a podcast gives us a chance to do something that, that poetry does very, very well, which is reside in the voice. And we can make this place where poets' actual voices are heard and the geographic reach we can reach everywhere. Actually, I guess, through the whole globe, not just in Scotland, if folk are interested.
0: That's what I told the funders, a potential audience of billions.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So hearing poets read their own work in their own voices and refer back, as we're going to do, to previous works in the Scottish canon, which will reanimate them, bring them back to life. Poetry comes out of silence, but it's not silent. And this gives us a space to, to both to come together and to reach apart and hear each other. And I think that's been missing in our national culture for, for quite a while.
0: Lovely, lovely. That sounds inspiring to me anyway, so I'm happy to crack on. We're going to like have loose themes each week for our poets to kind of speak to and give us a sense of uh, order. Our themes that we were chatting about this week are reading and attention. What do those themes mean for you in a poetic context?
1: If we can extend reading to language and say language and paying attention, then that, for me, would be a working definition of poetry. I often get asked, what is poetry? And I I can't answer, but that's for myself. That would be quite a good answer. Language paying attention. I used to think that language got in the way of paying attention, that you couldn't see a thing properly because words got in the way. But now I've changed my mind and I understand that language is what we do as human beings you know that's our way of being in the world so language and paying attention that's poetry
0: lovely one of the reasons we're putting this podcast together is because Scotland is just full of really talented poets at all different stages of their career so if you didn't again some of the folk of the names we're bringing out don't worry trust us these are poets you will love hearing and our first poet episode one poet one is Angus Zane. John Glendy. John, how are you doing? I'm very good, thanks, Ali. That, that was a fine introduction, that. Actually. <laughs> Angus and Jane, I like that. Now, to give folk a sense of who you are and who, how you are as a poet, do you want to tell us where it is you do your best work? I have three places I really do most
2: of my work. The first is a cupboard at the top of the stairs in our house, of our top landing which is uh, just a tiny wee room with a skylight and just enough space in it for a desk and a computer and a wee bookcase. Um, and I, I like writing there because I've got this sort of butterfly attention span. I always have all my life and it's been a real, a real cross to bear, but uh, it means that if I'm in that room, nothing is distracting me from the words that I'm concentrating on. I mean, the other place I do a lot of my work is when I'm walking the dog and that's because I feel that being out in the natural world somehow makes the words themselves more natural and I'll even kind of recite a line to myself as I'm walking along because the dog's not particularly interested in poetry and so it, I really feel I'm alone while I'm doing it uh, and I'll record lines onto my phone and then play them back when I get to my cupboard that's
0: amazing. T- take us just very quickly. Where about you walking this, Doug? On oh, the g- golf course at Kanousti. Gorgeous. God's country.
2: It's lovely. And then you know the sky the, this morning there were three skylarks hanging over me when it was when I was walking along. It's lovely. Unbeatable, that that high Angus sky. The third place where I do writing, I don't do any writing. It's it's uh, my kitchen table. I'll sit there and read. Um, because all my poetry books are on the shelves um above the table. And I have this habit of reading one poem by somebody else every morning before I start my day just to put my poems in perspective so I can say you know I can read one of Kathleen's or something and say this is what I should be doing (laughs) this is where I'm aspiring but I'll always do that so the reading at the beginning of the day is an important part of my own writing because writing poetry is collaborative you know whether we like it or not as poets that's a
0: great thought to start us off And as I said, we're in the Scottish Poetry Library and this is a living, breathing ecosystem of poetry. And you are our first guest, but I'm delighted to say we also have a second guest, the current writer in residence at the Scottish Poetry Library with us from Dublin It's Liz Houchin. Liz, welcome.
3: Thank you very much. It's very, very nice to be here.
0: It's great to have you. So tell us just a wee bit about where you do your best work.
3: I do... My best work uh, I have found when actually going with your theme, when I'm paying visual attention to something else, I have like so many people, I've got young kids, a busy life. And I find that when my eyes are quiet and because I'm focusing on a, a hockey match or watching something cooking in the oven, it almost frees your brain and your imagination to think of other things.
0: Yeah, Kathleen and John are both nodding off mic here as you talk about having a little visual distraction. You're both nodding away. Is that something you guys feel?
2: One of my favourite places for writing is in a really busy cafe in a city I've never been to before because there's loads of things going on. There's people walking in and walking out and I can concentrate on my words and there isn't any distraction, although there's distraction everywhere. And I think that's probably similar to the hockey match thing. Where thinking about something else, that's when the poems come.
1: Yeah, no, I, I flit about the place as well. You know, I don't, I don't have a designated writing place, so I'm tempted to say I do most of my writing in my head. And um, we don't get much natural light in my house, but I, I flit around with the sun. And I can't write when I'm not. Uh, I can't write abroad. You know, I'd love to go in these residences and go to fabulous other cities. But I would just, I would just do nothing. But um, I don't know where it comes from.
3: I don't know. I think the the writing in your head thing is very true and it's something that comes I think after a while and you begin to trust yourself that the thought you have had or the line you've had is good enough that it's going to still be there by the time you get home or when you build on it and you you trust yourself that it's not the only good word you're ever going to think of.
2: I always worry I'll forget. (laughs) That's why I recorded and I think I'll never remember this one.
0: This is a poetry podcast. I'd love us to have a poem. John, on our theme of reading, can you start us off? For my wife, reading in bed.
2: I know we're living through all the dark we can afford. Thank goodness, then, for this moment's light and you holding the night at bay. A hint of frown, those focused hands, that open book. I'll match your inward quiet breath for breath. What else do we have but words and their absences to bind and unfasten the knotwork of the heart, to remind us how mutual and alone we are, how tiny and significant. Whatever it is you're reading now, my love, read on, our lives depend on it.
1: Thanks, John, that was your poem from my wife reading in bed. That's such an arresting first line I know we're living through all the dark we can afford, you know, at a time when people are worried about affording light, electric light, you've, you've, you've turned that around. But this is a poem about language as well, I think. Yeah, you're nodding. <laughs> Good, um, And the gaps in language, which I think is what poets are often alert to, trying to push the language to the place where it, where it does actually break down. And it, you know, that's where poetry should should be. Um you say, what else do we have but words and their absences? So is that how poets like yourself function, attuned to language and its and its gaps and absences?
2: I, I think it's it's this thing about the poem being an unequal proportion of sound and silence mixed up, and the more I write, the more I come to understand that the the not words, that the silence is almost as important as the speaking. And that's kind of where the part of where the poem came from, because we're sitting in bed there and well, the dark. The dark was actually the the forty fifth presidency. That was what was in the background then. The most powerful nation in the world ruled by a man who probably never opened a book. That's the background to it all. That's the the overwhelming dark behind it. But the two of us sitting there in complete silence, we're not speaking, she's reading, I'm reading as well. And yet there's this sort of communication going on that we in our own way are battling this other dark that's going on.
1: It's wonderful to hear you speak about the, what I call the hinterland of the poem and Mm -hmm. everything that that funnels Mm -hmm. into the, the final words on the page, which is not that the poem is written in code, it's just that any good poem has all this background, you know, which is always fascinating to know, but it never actually impinges on the poem itself. So there you are, two, two people alone in silence, fending off the, the the darkness of the world. That's absolutely lovely.
2: And the book and the book was Leslie Glaster's uh, The Squeeze that she was reading, which is about um, human tra- sex
0: trafficking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So more darkness there. Mm. I was on uh, the London Underground when I first came across this poem. And usually when you're on the London Underground, you have above your head all these really horrible adverts for like hide your assets in Gibraltar.com or like um, hair loss clinics and all these like for like ads for Desperate City Boys. And then in amongst that, there's some little project, Poems on the Underground, and John Glendy's poem, to, for my wife reading in bed is up there alongside all these things beaming out something worthwhile how did that come about and how did that feel i've, I've no idea how it came about
2: because um I, I didn't know until um it was actually another poet friend that got in touch saying it was on the underground i, I didn't think about it although the the director eventually got in touch with me and said you know you know we've used your poem and my publisher didn't let me know but
0: <laughs> the royalties aren't pouring in that
2: uh, no, 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 that's not But, it, but, but it, it's strange because, um, you know, the, the idea that something's underground and getting more publicity than it did when it was published because it originally came out in an anthology of um, poems about bookshops.
0: That's incredible.
2: That's an incredible little second life for a, yeah. a really beautiful verse. And that's the other generation of it, of course, because was, it was a commission therefore I was desperately thinking, what the hell can I write for this commission about bookshops? And desperation is such a wonderful stimulus.
0: Thanks for that, John. Let's move on to your second choice. Has this got the theme of reading strongly, or is it less strong? Um, the, the, there's a hint of
2: reading in this one, but there's there's a lot about naming in it, I think. Um, it's called Least Willow, and the epigraph is from Nan Shepherd's wonderful The Living Mountain, about, about the Cairngorms. And the poem kind of harks back to my old hill-walking days. I used to go there a lot. Least Willow Least willow will cling to the slightest grief A half-sheltered crevice in the high granite Or shallow seam of grit And following five seasons of storms and ice and murk When at last the burn is hurrying so clear No one can find the words for it Will lift from its gloss of leaves, an indifferent bloom, so easily overlooked, in gratitude for this stone, and this hill, and this nation, and this earth, intricate, fragile, unforgiving, and all we will ever need.
1: Thanks, John, for your, your poem, Least Willow, which, which I love. It takes us from a tiny. So easily overlooked, your words, tree. And, and, and this is characteristic of your work. It takes us out into the universal in that last line without forcing that on us. Um, you're a very lucid writer. So this, to my mind, is a, is a poem of noticing or, or paying attention to the natural world. Um, did you actually encounter this this tree, this least willow?
2: Oh, yeah, in, in the Gorms, yeah. And you do find them in the little shelter crannies and crevices. And you do need to sh- step over them because... Well, it, it's a subarctic climate there. So the plants are hardy, but they're slow growing. So if you damage plants by walking off the path or whatever, it'll take decades and decades for them to recover. You know, So they're, they're, they're incredibly fragile and um, strong at the same time. And I, I love that paradox.
1: So I was going to actually ask you, do you think of this as an eco-poem?
2: Well, in a way it is, yeah, because we're going to inevitably lose these, you know, when when the the climate, um, and the temperature increases, then we're less likely to find least willow on our 3,000 foot plateaus.
1: God, look how we're saying when, not if.
2: When, not if. And this is, all comes back to the thing about noticing, you know, we need to be noticing least willow because
0: at some point it's not going to be there.
1: Oh, God, it's what times we're living in mm. I don't know. Mm.
0: just emerging from that reading john because i love this poem written dune but you talking earlier on about those spaces and the silences being almost important as the words your reading had so much space in it that really felt like it added quite a lot to it is that is that quite an intentional reading style you have for the poem or um it's
2: it's really just the, the way the poem comes out in me but but i, I want the space to be there because the poem is a collaborative act between the poet and the reader. You know, it's not just me telling folk that the least will lose a tiny wee tree that lives in the Cairngorms. Gorms. There also has to be space in the poem for the reader to think about what's happening and for the reader themselves to notice what's going on. And that's what the silence does. It implicates the reader in the poem.
1: It might it might be worth saying, given we can't see the poem, that it's only ten lines long and those ten lines are arranged into five wee couplets. So it's it's very spacious on the page. Yeah,
2: and there's this thing, you know, the 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 quote as well. You know, it's, I, I I put the epigraph as a as a joke. You know, the thing to be known grows with the growing, and I think at least we'll, we'll get bigger in our minds if we if we talk about it. But it's the same with people, you know. And the great thing about poetry for me is that it refuses not to notice individuals. You know, poetry is no good at talking about the big picture about you know the the huge events that are going on in their lives but it's brilliant about naming people and putting them in the context and them telling the story of the huge things that are going on
1: Yeah, that's why so much overtly political poetry fails, isn't it? It's far too general and far too lofty but your least willow and that line which moves skips so beautifully to this nation and then this earth, you know suddenly you have that vastness without even striving for it (laughs)
0: We are in the Scottish Poetry Library. I'm here with Scotland's macker, Kathleen Jamie. We've just had some amazing readings from John Glendy, and we have the current writer in residence, Liz Houchin from Dublin City. Liz, absolutely great that you are here and you can join us for this podcast. Please, would you give us a wee, a wee poem, an introduction to it, and then we'll get a wee chat about it after and chat about yourself as a poet.
3: I'd be so happy to. Uh, This is a poem written only a few days ago after sitting in front of Alison Watts' magnificent painting Still, which is in old St Paul's Church. Dust Cloth We're calling time Flat dregs and a ripped mix tape Leave us wanting leave Of this party, this place So bring me your cotton twill Bolts from ancient times, woven on the slant, over one and under two, and on the count of three, we'll roll it out before us, and watch it float, and almost catch, and almost breeze, before it sinks and settles, over bicycles and footballs, over empires and oceans, draping in furrows and folds, in softness and in shadow, perhaps a swaddle, perhaps a shroud. Oh, that's lovely.
1: I like that. So it's um, it's a pleasure to have you here. But I understand this is your last day in, in Scotland for going back to, to Dublin and that you're here courtesy of Poetry Ireland, which is one of my favourite poetry magazines.
3: It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, this is the first time Poetry Ireland and the... Arts Council have sent five poets around the world for residencies, and I was very lucky to get the Edinburgh gig.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. And and your poem, Dust Cloth, you've obviously been exploring the city and and you've gone to see Alison Watt's magnificent painting just down the road Um, here. If anybody doesn't know her work, she paints, how would you describe it, falling pleats of cloth?
3: Yeah, very, very large, abstract oils of just cloths and their folds and their shadows and this one hangs uh, just to the left of the altar beside a memorial wall and it's absolutely stunning.
1: So you obviously found your way into the church which I presume was silent and sat there paying complete attention to this image.
3: Yeah I mean it's it's so disarming and when you sit there and this the silence and you start to hear the voices of as you often do in a church of the people who have gone before and yeah immediately the idea of the the dust cloth being rolled out over the earth came into my head how big is the painting it's i don't it's absolutely enormous it's in four so it creates obviously across the way they're they're hung i think it was it was painted especially to hang where it is and it is uh, in such contrast to the um, the ornate church. I'd recommend it very, very, very calming. Mm-hmm. Very calming and so restful on the eye. And of course, one of those amazing paintings that the more you look at it, the more you see.
1: And you say that the poem began to come to you even as you were sitting there.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, very, very much so. It's it's very. I I'd imagine that it has. A really powerful effect on anyone who sits in front of it. Um, and to me, particularly all these names that were to my left of all these people who had died in wars and gone before. And it was very affecting. There was a, a finality to the painting, I felt.
1: Yeah, you could, but you, you animate it, the, the painting's extremely still and calm. But your 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 poem animates it by saying we watch it float and almost catch and almost breeze so you're seeing motion in this, this stillness
3: yes and i because i feel actually mean not dissimilar to john's uh, least willow that all almo- that feeling that we have possibly almost done enough to save the planet but mm-hmm. not quite enough
1: it's where we all are in, in, our, mm-hmm. in our thoughts, and I think also it's a link with, with John's poem in, in and your ability, which I envy, to, to universalise without standing in a great soapbox to do it. When you're going over empires and oceans, there you are sat in a church as you as you were with your your least willow, and suddenly we're out in the huge world. The huge world is at your feet as a poet, you know, and you do you both do it that so elegantly
2: and that's what I loved about it, was it bicycles and footballs to empires and oceans. And when we were talking about it, I thought, gosh, is this the the, the remembrance details? The other details were leeching into the poem as well. And I, I love it because I, I want to ask you about ekphrastic poetry because I, I write poems based on paintings all the time and it's, it's great to meet someone else that does it and wondered, do you often find your inspiration there?
3: I do, and it's quite by surprise, but... I was studying the Black Mountain Poets from Black Mountain College in the States and I discovered Annie Albers, Joseph Albers' wife, who was an amazing weaver there and in the Bauhaus. And she was the most extraordinary writer as well and wrote about the importance of letting the material speak for itself. And I became, as you do, became quite obsessed by Annie Albers and her weavings and I could see that when you look at a piece of art, if you trust the piece of art to do its job, you in turn can can do your job as a poet.
2: Yeah, it's that, it's that feeling that the image was a starting point and you went off on this vast journey from there. But I also got a feeling that there was... There's a nod at the craft of poetry in there as well. When you talk about woven on the slant, I thought, Oh, that's what my poems are.
3: Yeah. I mean I I really I, I do see poetry as a as a as a craft. And I really think it pay as you do, pay huge attention to the quiet and how it looks on the page. And those things are all just so um important.
2: Yeah, it shows
1: yeah, we could spend as much time again talking about the the, the craft that's gone into both of your poems, the craft and control and, and the acute listening to the sounds of the language, you know, at the level of the punctuation, at the level of the vowel, at the level of the line ending, which we all three just, ooh, we love it.
3: And and which people respond to, even if they don't know they are. I've had children from the primary school next door in here for workshops during my residency, and they are really small, young kids and they responded absolutely immediately to, I showed them examples of concrete poetry and other visual forms. And immediately they instinctively know what they're, what they're getting from the poem. And, and they haven't reached that age of being afraid of poetry or thinking it's for someone else or only for poets. And extremely inspiring because their connection, what they're seeing is absolutely unfiltered. What fun you must have had. Oh, I mean the noise levels in the library now. I think they've never experienced something like it but it it was brilliant. Yeah, But
2: there's something else there about accessibility as well isn't there? If young children are exposed to real poetry and real poets at an early age, it's so important for them. Not presented to it as this something on a higher plane that they've got to look up to. You know, this is the wonderful Shakespeare and what he wrote. Here's a living poet. Here it is now, you know living in the air. And it's it's just so so important, and that's why poems on the underground. You know, people who would not normally read a poem will read that poem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was young, there was a tiny art gallery in Broughty Ferry and a little um, library, and I would go and sit in there and read the books, or wander in the Orchard Gallery and look at a colorist painting. When I was nine years old, and that's why the classic poems come out, and you. Um, your work being exposed to primary school children is so vital.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, but I show them um, like a Susan Howe poem from the state, a, like language poem all over the place. You couldn't make head nor tail of it and they were utterly accepting of it. I showed them photos from Little Sparta, you know, of an Ian, Ian Hamilton Finley. And... They were not saying that's not a poem. They were like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then as soon as I got them to write poems to do a poetry swap with a school in Dublin, they were like, oh, yeah, I've got this. And, this, you know, what they created was extraordinary. So what goes
2: wrong? It gets compartmentalised, you know. This is poetry and uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in something else. And it's, and it's just a thing that's about the real world, you know, that we're getting exposed to poetry as part of the real world. It's important.
0: I would say, like, me and Kathleen have a kind of a, a good cop, bad cop attitude to life where she's the unhappy theatre mask, I'm the happy one. And, like, you say, What's go- what goes wrong? We're in a, the city centre in a big, beautiful poetry library and we have loads of listeners to this podcast who are loving poetry. So it doesn't always go wrong. You do find your audience. You do find your audience. And and when I compare
2: poetry, I was going to say the poetry scene, I don't know what scene is, but when I compare poetry <laughs> now to when I started publishing which is in the 80s and you know you could kind of predict the sort of people who would be publishing and where they'd be publishing and what sort of stuff they'd be publishing and what it would look like and what it would sound like and now there's just new stuff coming all the time which is absolutely um, enthralling you know we're going to be looking at Marjorie Lotfi and um, we've got folk like um, Alicia Poor Muhammad who's come from Canada and published here and getting a great reputation reputation here and Scottish poetry is absorbing so many other influences at the moment and I just think it's so vital and it affects me so much.
0: Can I ask, just now we've had such an interesting discussion about that poem and I've learned the new word egg poetry, it's quite a brief one. Do you mind just sharing it with us again so the audience can get a chance to re-digest it with all that new information? No problem. I'd love that. Okay.
3: Dust cloth. We're calling time Flat dregs And a ripped mix tape Leave us wanting leave Of this party, this place So bring me Your cotton twill Bolts from ancient times Woven on the slant Over one and under two And on the count of three We'll roll it out before us And watch it float And almost catch an almost breeze before it sinks and settles over bicycles and footballs, over empires and oceans, draping in furrows and folds, in softness and in shadow, perhaps a swaddle, perhaps a shroud.
2: Damn, I wish I'd written
3: that. <laughs> 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 yeah, to it. Head down to the church. I'm <laughs> going to start
1: <laughs> that to be, That'll be a- <laughs> A queue of poets outside the
0: door. Honestly, that that is just fantastic. Thank you so much. Something we ask our poets that feature on the podcast is for them to bring a poem from this great Scottish canon that they'd like to share as well. And that'll be read by Kathleen. John, our theme this week is reading, paying attention, noticing... Tell us about your poem that you've chosen for us. Uh, I've
2: chosen On Seeing Iran in the News, I Want to Say, by uh, Marjorie Lotfi, and it comes from her pamphlet Refuge that Tapsaltiri
0: brought out, um, I think it was about three years ago. Lovely. So Kathleen's going to read it for us, but you've laid her a landmine of a poem with a couple of Persian words in it. Yeah, it's got a couple of Persian words in it. Um, I chose the poem because... I, th- I
2: think it's it's a lot to do with um, this quality of attention that can be paid. You know, it's what you could call a, a political poem, but it brings it to an almost domestic level to make that real for, for people because uh, the news is inhumane in many ways. and, and I, I love the attention this pays to, to individuals. So there's a couple of names in it. Tabriz is a town in northern um, Iran. Um, but the word Jaharshan Suri is, uh, it's a at, at Nowruz, at New Year in Iran, they'll jump over a bonfire and it's a way of purification and renewal. So the, the children will jump back and forth over a bonfire in the, the last Wednesday before New Year and sing a little song. And it's something like, um, your redness in me, my paleness in you, as they jump over these flames. And that's what Shahan is.
1: On seeing Iran in the news, I want to say my grandmother was called Nasrin, that she died two years ago in Tabriz, and I couldn't go to say goodbye, that she knew nothing of power, nuclear or otherwise. I want to say that the fires for Chaha Shanbe Suri were built by the hands of our neighbours, And as children we were taught to jump and not be caught by the flame. I want to say my cousin Elnaz, the one born after I left, has a son and two degrees in chemistry and trouble getting a job. I want to say that the night we swam towards the moon hanging over the horizon of the Caspian Sea, we found ourselves kneeling on a sandbar we couldn't see, like a last gift. I want to say... I am the wrong person to ask.
2: Because the other, the other thing about Marjorie Lotfi for you is, and the ties in we're reading is she's the director of the Open Book Charity which um, brings the reading of poetry to groups that would not normally be able to access it you know some of the underprivileged groups or mental health groups and the like. And they just look at poems and enjoy them.
0: I like that. I'm seeing Liz is noting that down. So she, that's, yeah, a of, yeah. that's a bit of that's a bit of cross cultural pollination there.
2: It's a it's a wonderful uh, initiative, and uh, you know I think if you're choosing a poet who's
0: brought nothing but good to Scotland, then Madge a good choice. Liz, I'd love to ask you, as somebody that heard that for the first time, what did you make of that whole what we heard from John about the poet, and what did you make of the poem?
3: Yeah, this is the very first time I've heard this poem by. Marjorie Lothby. What struck me on that first reading was the energy, the contemporary nature of it, but also what I love for is the the repetition in it, the structure of it. And I have to say, what an amazing title for a poem. It's a poem that invites you in immediately and a poem that comes across as extremely honest which I think is, is so important in a poem that has a political side to it, yeah. to have that, you, you absolutely know that she knows what she's writing about and you absolutely trust the the opinion of the, the voice in the poem.
0: Just on that title, for those, for those that are obviously listening to this, the title of the poem is On Seeing Iran in the News, comma, On Seeing Iran in the News, comma, I Want to Say and it feeds straight into that first Mm. line of my grandmother was called Nasreen. And And as you say, it draws you in. It's
2: the precision of the language there because she's not actually saying that she says that. You know, this is what she wants to do. Does she say it or not? We we never know. But I love that one of the duties of poetry is to make the inhumane humane. And so when you write a poem about, uh, you know, the sanctions against Iran, nuclear proliferation, whatever else is going
0: on, um, you start it by naming your granny. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of the duties of poetry, and I think Kathleen is macar. You can carve them into stone on Arthur's seat. The duties of poetry, and let us know what they all are. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts about the poem, Kathleen?
1: I, I, I'm I'm new to it, and I I love the way, as you say. But um the title is also the first lines, so so it's not announcing itself, It just you know draws you in immediately. And there's something John said about um he said something about naming people and personalizing, which she does in the very first line, as she said, about her grandmother. So and we get under the the rhetoric and the hegemony and the warmongering and all the ways that language can be abused, you know, and poetry always to my mind what we were talking about, the duties of poetry. The duty of poetry is to stand against the, the abuse of language and to keep reminding us of its, its wellspring under our feet and through our hearts and through our breath You know, as, as human beings, be we from Iran or from America or from Indonesia or anywhere. It's very unifying. And I think there's a global culture of poetry which is quiet and understated and unknown, but is a, um, an essential corrective to all the, the way that language can be beaten us over the head with, you know?
2: Yeah, the language can, can it saves us in a way because when you name, you can turn the inhumane into the humane. Um, you know, politics is great at, at, at dealing with vast numbers, uh, you know, the, the population of Iran, but once you name someone, it's difficult to disregard them. I've got um, a friend who's a botanist in Edinburgh and he puts um, name tags on weeds in the street. Oh, You know, so hawkbit or um, Rayless Mayweed, you know, and then people will pass and instead of saying, oh, it should be cleaning up these streets better, they'll say, oh, that's what hawkbit looks like.
1: That's a great idea. Yeah.
2: That is honestly some of the best kind of
0: graffiti <laughs> I've ever heard of.
3: <laughs> I think something else about that poem as well, which struck me is, which I think some of the best poems do, is that their imagery of the tradition of jumping through the fire. I think it's the type of poem that it is. And I love poems like that, that have such energy and are so tight that you really feel you have just jumped, you know, through a fire and and survived (laughs) right to the side very clever.
2: And it brings cultures together because all this the Scots traditions of fire, you know, we went to our granny's house at New Year and everyone brought coal and that was because of the old Scots tradition that you put the fire out at New Year and lit it again and smeared it. And and,
1: and, it uh, in Ireland, you've got St John's Night, am I right? Midsummer, it's, it's a fire festival.
3: Yes, and we have obviously Halloween that started in in Ireland as well. So, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so th- that could be why it's immediately... Um, appealing this poem totally
0: obviously I won't stand that for a second Halloween is met in Scotland Uh, but (laughs) no it's the Celtic nations but I think um, that does tie so nicely with our theme of reading that through reading we're able to access this completely different worldview and this completely different lived experience like I grew up in a wee village in Angus I would have no access to this kind of thing except through the inhumane Language of the news, and this poem is able to take me there, and able to make help me care about it, and help to appreciate the individuals, which I think's a tremendous um, power, and is one of the duties of poetry, I believe. And there's nothing fancy about it, you know,
2: it's ordinary stuff about ordinary people.
1: Yes, the addiction apart from that that lovely dropping in of the of the of the Persian words, the diction's quite plain, yeah. you know, nothing highfalutin, as we mm. would say.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, it's been an amazing first episode. I'm so glad you're all able to join us here in the room. We're at the Scottish Poetry Library. I beseech you at home. You can come in here yourself. It's free to join and free to take out any of the poetry books you like. There's space here to read in a relaxing way. If you're more intent, there's space here to study. You can bring your books and you can get a desk and you can take time. Over the work. If you can't get to the middle of Edinburgh, or you fancy going to the middle of Edinburgh, they will post you books for free and include return postal envelopes, so there's no cost to you. You can get works from all the three poets you heard from today from Liz, from Kathleen, and John. They've all got work here that you can come and enjoy. And even if that's too much hassle, then have a look at the Scottish Poetry Library website, where there's just a tremendous gift of poems for you to rake through. John, if someone is gonna come here and take out one of your books, which would you recommend? Probably my Selected Poems. It's got a little bit from everything in it. And Liz, you've got a collection in here.
3: Yes, it's called Anatomy of a Honey Girl, Poems for Tired Women. And I would, again, a, a Selected Poems, because
1: John and I are of an age <laughs> to have a selected poems out most of my work is in that
2: wonderful all the duff ones are left out of mine as well (laughs) not as that (laughs) guys
0: thank you
3: thank you thank you
0: thank you produced by the spoken media.